Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Kia ora everyone, welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking. I had the great honor of speaking with Tatipine O'Regan recently and got to hear his life story. For this project of Seeds podcast, I've now spoken with more than 360 people. And the real heart of what I'm doing is downloading a life story to work out not what the person does today, but what is it that's motivated them, what's influenced them to become the person that they are. And so that's the approach that I took with this conversation. Many interviews with Tatipine Oregon talk about specific details, events, the treaty settlements. And what I wanted to do instead was find out about what is it that shaped him in his early years, his grandparents, his parents, other influences. And then I also asked him about wairua, whenua, and kaitiakitanga so that we could gain from his wisdom. I really enjoyed this interview, and I'm confident that you will as well. If you enjoy this episode, then why not share it on social media so other people can find it? This is a word-of-mouth project. I don't really have a budget, so it relies on people like you to share about the content on Seeds. And there's a lot more information at theseeds.nz, and I'm putting a link in the show notes so you can easily click to find out more. And a big thank you to Anike Goodall for the connecting that he did so that this conversation could happen. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Tatipine Oregon. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Tatipine Oregon to Seeds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My great pleasure. Tenakwe. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk with you today. Um, and I wanted to explain something that I think connects us, which is the ocean. My mother was born in Panama, the intersection of two oceans, and her great, great, great grandfather had moved from France to Panama to help build the Panama Canal. With Ferdinand de Lesseps. Exactly, with de Lesseps. And unfortunately, they were not successful, <laughs> but the ocean played a big part in her upbringing in Panama, learning Spanish, and that was where she was from. And my father was from America, and he's a marine biologist. So he moved our family to New Zealand in 1983, and we moved down onto the Waitaki River, um, down south near a place called Papakayo, and he was raising salmon on the river. So I thought that might be an interesting point to mention, is that the ocean has been a big part of my own family history. And I know that ocean is a big part of your own life story as well, isn't it? It's had a, a varying influence on my life. Uh, I was, uh, all my life, I've uh, been obsessed by boats and the sea. Now, why, I'm not entirely clear, but my maternal poet or grandfather uh, was a, a certified master in both sail and steam. And he was a very experienced seaman by profession. Mm. Based out of Awurua, the harbour of Bluff in the far south. My father uh, grew up by the sea uh, in Wellington, even though he was of West Coast South Island parentage. They'd been moved to Wellington when my Pākehā grandfather 
went into Parliament very young as the member for Buller on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. He later uh, became a, uh, a lawyer and then a High Court judge. His interest was in, well, they used to call it in those days the New Zealand Supreme Court, but it was what we now call the High Court. Mm -hmm. He was a, a specialist in the business of arbitration and compensation. Mm -hmm. What he was known for was securing the rights for the Napier earthquake victims of the early 30s at the Privy Council in London mm -hmm. and uh, uh, also uh, his uh, proceedings he took over compensation for the Buller Miners Union over the dread disease of phthisis. Mm. So he became a judge essentially uh, of uh, arbitration and compensation matters. Yeah. But he was quite noted for that. But when he died, he was on the upper house of New Zealand. We had two houses of parliament in those days. He was on the Legislative Council at that time. He died in 1948. The Irish side of my life has, I think, very much shaped my father. His father was known as Big Pat. He was a very tall, strongly built man. And when he was a member of parliament in those days, he used to walk from Reefton to Nelson to catch the steamer to Wellington. He was quite a noted figure even in his youth. Mm -hmm. He only had three years of primary school education before he was taken out of school. After that he was self-educated. But his diaries in the uh, Turnbull Library in Wellington are a noted resource for mm. all sorts of scholars in New Zealand history. Yeah. The, uh, and there's several, however they measure them, metres of these full-scap, close-type diaries, which he started in 1929. But uh, he subsequently did a, wrote a memoir of his life in his la last few years, or dictated it into type. And uh, that was of the years of his life from his birth in 1869 in Charleston on the West Coast to uh, his uh, time when he took up the diary. And uh, it's called The Mirror of Memory. Extraordinary little book. But anyhow, enough of that. And can I ask you a question there? Um, because in this interview, I would love to find out about these people. To, in my mind, that's who shaped who you've become. Well, when I think about that person, I'm actually brought along a photo of him. So that's him. I think that's it was him. in 1940. That's him. And I just wonder, because you were alive when he was alive. Oh, yes. And, and he I used wonder, to come to our home did he? every I wondered, Sunday. I wondered if you could share some of your personal memories of him. And what do you remember? Because how old were you when he passed away? Were you about... Uh, uh, I was born in 1939. And he died, and I think I'm right, 48. 48. Yeah. And what interests me is that these people, because in this interview we could talk about dates and we could talk about events and things that have happened because your life has been fascinating and you've touched on, in so many ways, many different aspects. 
But instead of asking about that, I would like to find out more about your memories of those sorts of people who well, influenced well, you. Thank you. That's a useful caution. But my memories of that man, mm -hmm. my father was one of his middle children. He had quite a big family. My father was always the, the as a doctor, he was the caregiver to and advisor to both his siblings and his parents. But my, uh, uh, my grandfather uh, had uh, Big Pat, uh, had his favourites, and my mother used to be quite indignant because when I was a small child, he'd bounce me on his knee and say, Pom my word, pom my word, Tom's a very fine boy. And my mother would be hurt and she'd go out into the kitchen and make the afternoon tea and have a little weep because the old man uh, had eyes for only one grandson, who is my cousin Tom, is still alive up in, in Marlborough. But the, uh, the point I'm wanting to get to was that he came from an extraordinary tradition. He was self-educated, as I told you, and he heavily shaped the thinking and the mind of my father, uh, who was a very accomplished and distinguished surgeon in his own right. But my father was like his father and at least two of his brothers they they followed their father in that he was a polymath. He was systematically interested in just about everything. Mm. My father, in his life, very very much followed the imprint of his own father. But they tell the stories of him as a youngster because at the age of 12, Big Pat was sent off into Taranaki to a widowed cousin uh, to assist her with her operation of her the farm that she bush farm in Taranaki that she found herself left with he turned up there at the age of 12 the stories of him sitting in his uh, shed on the farm at night in his late teens reading books like um, The Wealth of Nations and uh, scholarly texts and the writings of Henry George, the American Episcopalian minister who was a great advocate for the single tax. My grandfather and my father after him frequently quoted Henry George that it was difficult to repress a feeling of contempt for a nation that stung by such wrongs only occasionally murdered a landlord. Uh, <laughs> he's talking of the colonised treatment of Ireland as a colony of Great Britain. Mm. So he was fiercely in favour of Irish independence. He had no compunction during the First World War when uh, there was no conscription in the United States, in Australia in assisting with a contract carrier from Miramar and Wellington called Fox. The two of them used to smuggle young Irishmen out of New Zealand in the coal scuttles of ships. Uh, to Australia, where there was no conscription. They didn't have to fight for England. Whereas 
in New Zealand they could be conscripted. He was doing this while he was come out of Parliament by that time, and he was in the early stage of practicing law. Wow. Uh, they did those sorts of things and had that sort of activity. So he was an activist as well as a yeah. uh, thinker. And uh, that's reflected in his diaries. Now, my father saw the finest thing he could do was in many ways was to emulate his own father. My father became a fervent Georgist, a uh, follower of Henry George. And uh, it was frequently, uh, in my youth, disappearing off to... Uh, United States and Canada and Australia and other places, talking to like-minded groups uh, mm. of Georgist uh, followers, and led a number of campaigns in New Zealand for the, ba the ballot on rating systems, uh, campaigning for rating on the unimproved value of land. I won't bore you with the detail of that thesis. All the discussion of those matters was in my teens, at least, uh, to inform my own thinking about uh, a whole range of social justice and mm. valuation questions and the yeah. curse of inflation and so on. Now, my father inherited from his father, for whom he was a devoted caregiver in later life, uh, a, many of his views, together with a considerable gift for oratory, a great mastery of the English language, and indeed of Latin. I had one uncle, my father's slightly older brother, who used to be reading for the third time Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and uh, which he just about knew by rote, and uh, he'd also be reading at the same time, you see the books alongside his bed, uh, the uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars in the original Latin. And my father followed him in that school and used to love limericks with Latin tales on them and mm. things of that kind. So uh, the Paternal interests uh, and interests of that group of people, strangely enough, uh, wherever I find O'Regans, I find trace elements of that sort of liberal activist involved thinking in Australia, Canada, and in the Yukon. And a young man named after my own father an older man now, retired in England, came to visit in New Zealand not so long ago, born in Ireland but living in London. And this man came to visit and I was fascinated in the conversations with him to <laughs> find that he, he was of a similar bent. But wherever I've found O'Regans in my life, I've found people of liberal, independent views. Mm. And uh, as Rory Sweetman says in his biography of my paternal grandfather, Big Pat, Patrick O'Regan called no man master. Mm. And that's his closing line uh, in Tower and so 
Wikipedia. So these, uh, this, that batch of ideas certainly imprinted itself on my teenage years at least. In the earlier years, I was familiar with this big man. Mm. And my maternal grandfather, the Naitahu sea captain, was less known to me, known to me by repute. He was always quoting his mentor, uh, who he shipped out with as an AB, able-bodied seaman, and ended up as a, a fully ticketed master mariner. Uh, as I said before, I think, in both steam and sail. But he'd been on whale sailing, whaling sailing ships on the New Zealand coast, and he'd uh, was a, an AB there. But his great mentor was the, a very famous figure in New Zealand called Captain Bollins. Captain Bollins was the commander of the government steamers, the Hinemoa and the Titanakai. They used to go down to the Subantarctic Islands, the Aucklands and others, on a regular service, servicing castaway depots. And all the ships used to, sailing ships used to come into New Zealand down the uh, roaring 40s through the Southern Ocean and that had come to New Zealand either with immigrants or with uh, whaling or uh, so on uh, and they'd approached New Zealand uh, from the south and they'd come around through the Roaring Forties and up uh, through the Southern Ocean mm. and they'd arrived, their first port of call and base was usually Ruapuka Island and Fobo Strait because it was a sheltered harbour and uh, the Tasman current came in there and there was food available but many of them got wrecked on the way and so the government maintained the government steamers to go around uh, with the servicing castaway depots mm. for survivors of shipwreck. Wow. This m captain, Captain Bollins, became a noted maritime figure both in New Zealand history and in the southern regions. My mother's brothers, who were all fishermen or seamen except one, they were always quoting their father, the uh, ship's captain and uh, master mariner. They were always quoting him as, we'll sail on, the, uh, sail on the tide, God willing, weather and tide permitting. And so there was... As long as God was willing and we had good luck, the real point was that the determinants in life were wind and tide. Mm. And uh, they all thought like that. So I had these two trains of family connection. One intimately intertwined with the Southern Ocean and the seas. A father who was a polymath and a scholar a lot of oratory and gifts there. My maternal uh, grandmother, my toa, was a, a powerful influence because she, in our extended whānau, uh, was the keeper of the claim memory. She was deeply involved and intensely loyal 
to the issues raised by the Ngāikahu claims, which were first given notice to the Crown on uh, in the letter to the Governor-General in 1848, only eight years after the treaty and four years after the first land sales mm. uh, in the history. And so she had a very powerful influence on me uh, because uh, even though I'd have no personal memory of my uh, power, my grandfather, uh, his sons and her were always referring to him mm. and to his mentors. So in a funny way, I absorbed through these uh, family associations a tradition of uh, uh, liberal economics and uh, liberal social ideas. Now, uh, my father was a devout Catholic uh, and uh, you might say, uh, how would he have liberal social ideas? He was also the long-running chairman of that ultimate oxymoron, uh, the Rosenese branch of the Labour Party in Wellington. It's a bit like being uh, a, a Labour uh, Party party chairman or group chairman uh, in Fendleton or Ramawera <laughs> in Wellington. The Rosenese branch of the Labour Party is just about a contradiction in terms. But my father managed that for years and he was also a devout subscriber to the American Catholic Socialist uh, magazine, The Commonwealth, in which in my later teens I used to regularly read. And the people, our relations in California were, uh, one of them was married uh, to a one of the editors of the Commonwealth and met her and had some association with her in an earlier phase of my life. So these influences were flowing into me and informing my thinking, yet my basic ambition at the time I married uh, was to become a charter boat skipper in the Caribbean and build a schooner and go there. And I've still got the plans <laughs> up in my study, but I I had her designed by William Gardner in Seattle and uh, uh, spent a ridiculous amount of my time and effort and money dreaming that dream. Mm. But uh, <coughs> it's a now a dream that once was and uh, I am... Uh, blind and I can't read a dial, I can't read a compass, uh, and if I was sailing anything I'd have to be sailing by the feel of the wind on the back of my neck. <laughs> well thank you for sharing all of this because this is exactly what I was hoping to find out more because I think too often we look at somebody and talk about specific events and we don't pause to step back and look at what influenced them to then become who they have become. And in your case, it's fascinating because 
Patrick, your grandfather, was born in 1869. At Charleston. So, in Charleston. So by listening to you, we're actually connecting through time a very long time ago to what he went through. And the interesting thing to me is that you're talking about how he was a polymath. And I think the word that springs to my mind is curiosity, that both your grandfather and your father seem like they were quite curious people. Indeed. But one of the things of his continual walking and traveling of Patrick, uh, Patrick O'Regan mm. uh, was that he was an acute observer of nature. He was one of the foundation. He signed the first deed of trust for the, what was the New Zealand Native Bird Society, mm. to become later the Royal Forest and Bird Protection Society. My father, in due course, became the vice president of that body. Mm. And uh, he, he was a, an enormous advocate of the, on the, the Save Manapari campaign and uh, major conservation struggles at different times mm. in our history. But he was also, uh, because he married a Naitahu woman, uh, and that in itself is a story of some note. Uh, she was a senior nurse when he was a house surgeon. She was the first sister in charge of casualty at Wellington Hospital, which was a fairly distinguished level of promotion for a girl from Bluff, mm. even in those days. But uh, uh, she was at that stage, uh, senior to him. and uh, But she was a, quite a noted singer. And she, even though I'm, I've always been completely atonal, both my parents had fine singing voices. Hmm. And uh, that uh, uh, relationship was quite, it was hugely important uh, to their mutual care of uh, my paternal grandfather and my maternal grandmother. Right. Well, I would love to turn the conversation to talking about your parents. So we've talked a little bit about your father, and I brought along a photo of him. <laughs> so I think... That was him. Um, you might have noticed we went to the, we've gone to the same hairdresser. <laughs> That's right. Um, and I'm just beyond the photo and beyond what we can read about your father in biographies of things that he did. Like I think he served with the Wellington Harbor Board and he was a counselor for a while. Beyond those details, what was what was he like as a person? He gave me what passes for my head. And my mother gave me what passes for my emotions. So maybe your heart from your mother and your head uh, from your father? Well, it's very large. Uh, and that's being a little unkind to both. Mm. My mother had a huge amount of wisdom of a very simple kind and a lot of personal insight. And she was a very generous spirit. Uh, my father was similarly generous, particularly with his opinions, uh, but uh, he, let me 
pause and just tell you, I can remember as a very small child uh, lying in my diminutive bed, being aware, waking up and being aware in the night that he was standing in the door of my bedroom, just standing there in the half-light of the night, looking at me asleep, watching me. He just stand in the door, frame of the doorway. And I would pretend to be still asleep, and I'd watch him. And he would stand there for what seemed to me to be an eternity. I'd finally drop off to sleep. When I woke up, he'd be gone. That's a regular memory of my life. Now, part of his devotion to my upbringing and what I was, the way I was, because I, and the way I was raised at home, was due to the fact that my mother brought, I think, she had nine pregnancies before I was born, and several of them, or I don't know just how many, but I know that a number of them came uh, pretty much to full term before she lost them and I was the only child uh, natural child of their union I have two two adopted adopted brother and sister a little later my sister is still alive my brother is deceased I was always even though they went to great pains not to see me being especially favoured uh, over the other two, uh, I was always a bit different. Although there was uh, no absence of love, devotion, or care mm. to the uh, my two adoptive brother and sister. Mm. My father had this powerful emotional thing. I loved to play small games with him as kid. Uh, I'd climb under his bed in the morning and say, uh, Dad, can we, can we play ships? And we'd go, he'd go, da, 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 da. And you'd have to give a new type of ship. So you'd have battleships, sailing ships, yawls, schooners, tugs. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd just play this stupid game. But he'd give me time and he'd enjoy himself thinking of these things and then he'd have uh, all sorts of little bits of Latin that I heard from a very early age uh, not church Latin so much but one made up from the tail end of a certain class of uh, limerick that he enjoyed <laughs> and uh, many of which of these things I still recall. Mm -hmm. But he was devoted to my education, my sense of inquiry. And I used to come home from school and dodge cleaning up the paths from my mother's gardening efforts during the afternoon. Her style was to do all the weeding and throw everything on the path, waiting for me to come home <laughs> and clean it up. And uh, in order to dodge that and bad weather and other such times, I'd disappear down to my father's study. And there was a whole wall several yards long of my grandfather's bound diaries. 
and I'd pull one down and I'd read it. But if I found something interesting, I had to make a page note, a page number, and write uh, the question or the name. Who was this man? Where was this place? What was such and such? And if I I dip into their, my grandfather's diaries and my father would uh, say, you've been in my study this afternoon, where's your notes? <laughs> and I'd have to put my notes on the table, the dining room table. Mm. That would be the end of conversation for anyone else at the table, including my mother, who would just serve food and sit there. And my father would be debating with me or questioning me and asking me about the notes that I'd taken mm. during the after-school hours. Mm. So it sounds like your father was a real formative influence on oh, you. Oh, huge, yeah. absolutely huge. And every year he'd take me away with him for anything up to 10 days in the old 1937 Chevrolet <laughs> and we'd uh, go on a tour somewhere. And his, our camp used to be a tarpaulin which would be stretched over the car and out onto the ground on the other side and underneath the overhang uh, there'd be we'd have a pup tent and we'd sleep in the pup tent and uh, the next day we'd break camp and travel on somewhere else and I can remember even I must have been getting on for 12 years of age he parked one day on a cliff's edge and decided to uh, a, a hill looking down on the east coast of the North Island and uh, it was golden clay cliffs uh, rich, rich blue sea the Pahutaka was, it was Christmas were in full bloom mm. and uh, it was a magical view and my father took it upon him to park up and decided it was about time I learnt the facts of life so he started to explain matters of sex to me. Uh, I'd already learnt quite a lot behind the school bike sheds and uh, been advised on all sorts of matters by my peers. I remember sitting there with a feeling of deep pity for him as he tried to formulate my instruction in the matters of uh, reproduction and uh, and sex and mm. so on. And uh, he thought he was doing his duty. And I can remember letting him do it without... I asked innocent questions from time to time without any trace of innocence in reality <laughs> uh, in order to give him the impression that it was... I just felt this huge upswelling of love for him as he stumbled through uh, the facts of life for me. Mm. And uh, having done his duty, we moved on. Mm. But uh, we had, uh, on those travels, uh, he was always identifying trees, plants, and whenever we went for a, a hike, which he'd do from time to time on a uh, Sunday afternoon, wherever we were, we'd 
I used to have to carry a little pack when I was small. I had to do my duty when I was getting a bit older, but uh, I'd have a little backpack. And in it I had Langham Blackwell's Native Plants of New Zealand. I had Cotton's Geomorphology of New Zealand and a book on uh, Māori uh, place names and other such. And we'd climb to the top of a hill and the old man would look out across this windswept, cop freezing site. I'd be totally exhausted. And he'd say, how do you think that uh, valley was shaped? How do you think that, uh, why is the, that hill shaped like that? What do you think about that coast down there? I, the last thing I wanted to hear, <laughs> haven't a clue, Dad. Look it up, sir, look it up. And he'd... I'd have to bring out Cotton's Geomorphology or Langham Blackwell wow. with their waterproof covers and look them up and discuss it with so them. So it sounds like he really was teaching you the the mind, you know, the, keeping um, the logic and, and looking around you with curiosity. All the time. Yeah. All the time. What a legacy to pass on to your children, though. That's wonderful. Well, I, I haven't been terribly diligent in doing that, but they are in their own way. Uh, my, our son, Gerard, who's got a PhD in anthropology and archaeology, is a pretty widely known both nationally and internationally in the area of Maori and indigenous rock art. Right. And he's a, cura a curator Maori of the uh, Otago Museum and he's an adjunct at the Otago University and adjunct at the Canterbury Museum. Mm. Uh, I have a daughter, Hannah, who's a language, uh, Te Reo Māori, uh, a revival uh, expert mm. and a deep participant in all of those movements. And uh, uh, she's the author of a, a couple of books. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's Which wonderful. She's nice. she's doing a great job actually here in Christchurch. She's she's well known. And I'm well, she's known both nationally and internationally. Mm. Those two are. There's another boy who fuck up us to bluff. Who's about the same age as uh, Gerard, our son, mm -hmm. who is uh, uh, connected. In, uh, he he lives in Vancouver. Uh, he's a bluff descent. Aburua Marai. And uh, he's another archaeologist of some note. So we've got quite a few mm. people of some considerable depth yeah. in the, within the tribe, but in these matters. But I've uh, got a, uh, another daughter who's a highly qualified nurse and uh, who now runs a... a Trust for the Homeless in uh, Wellington, mm. grandchildren with uh, good degrees. Uh, our eldest daughter's eldest boy is now a doctor, a doctor of medicine, and uh, all sorts of talents flowing. Not that any of them replicate me in terms of that polymathic sort of range of interest but mm. they're pretty good with their hands some of them our son is yeah uh, they 
they've all got their various different talents, mm. and many of which uh, come from their mother. Mm. But anyhow. Well, it sounds like things have been passed on through generations. And I'm just curious as well, we've talked about your father and he was a big influence and we've said that's the head side of things. And then you mentioned the emotions with your mother. Uh, I, I don't want you to think in any way that uh, she was a, just a, a big, loving, smiling mother. She was a very fine singer. Mm. She used to sing both. In the First World War, she uh, used to tour this, this island anyhow, uh, uh, singing and raising funds for the boys overseas, Maori Pioneer Battalion. Uh, they were fighting on the Western Front. She used to sing regularly in later life uh, in concerts and hospitals mm. and she'd walk around through the wards and sing a mm, few, few brackets of water after water and she was widely regarded for that capacity mm. but she was a, 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 a brilliant correspondent even though I could never I had always have great difficulty reading or writing but uh, she was widely loved and regarded. The highest thing I can say to my wife was, uh, now is that her oyster soup is even better than my mother's. Mm. And uh, you know, really little jokes like that. <laughs> but uh, it, it, and I have to say it is. Mm. But my mother's was regarded as a, peerless uh, hostess mm. just, uh, she attracted the attention in a very friendly way and she went with my grandmother on a journey in the days when we had a regular shipping routes, passenger shipping routes to this uh, uh, western coast of North America and there was a liner called the Aorangi used to travel from New Zealand through Hawaii and up to San Francisco and do various things. My grandfather had absolutely no interest in travelling like that. He went to Australia on a cause uh, and that was about it. He'd come back and his, his idea of travel heaven was to go back to the west coast of the South Island Nanahua to his son's farm mm. uh, which he put his son onto which they had a big gathering of the Oregans of Nanahua earlier this year which I was unwell uh, and I could not attend which I was dis bitterly disappointed mm. about and strangely enough I had a call from one of them this morning uh, on the phone asking if it would be possible to go back over there. Mm. Well, this uh, whole thing in, uh, uh, with my mother, though, was my mother was the connective tissue. She maintained the contact with correspondence. She wrote to everyone. But I wasn't the only person who had a problem with the handwriting, because I remember she got a 
letter once which he was quite concerned about from uh, California and Mary Ellen had written to her and said Dear Renna and I paraphrase uh, we so much enjoy receiving your letters they are such a challenge <laughs> <laughs> but in the course of that she formed a contact or a relationship I was going to mention this earlier mm. uh, with Tarangi Hiro Sir Peter Buck the great ethnologist and parliamentarian of New Zealand who became the first professor of anthropology at Yale and then subsequently founded the Bernese Bishop Museum in uh, uh, Honolulu Tarangihiro was a distinguished parliamentarian on the military cross at Gallipoli who went on to become one of the great scholars of Maori migrations and origins. His book, The Coming of the Maori, was one of those foundation texts of giving New Zealand a higher understanding or an expanded opportunity to understand. Mm. Uh, the nature of the Polynesian diaspora in the Pacific. Now, I can remember him visiting New Zealand and staying at our home, and the world seems to seem to be arriving at our house uh, uh, non-stop for a, a period while everyone came to pay their respects to the great man. Mm. But he was a wonderfully important man, and this... I still use his Toparapara, his opening from a speech I heard him give in the house with my mother sitting in one easy chair in one corner and he and another by the piano. At the other end of the room we kicked two big long couches and visitors sitting there and people would come in and they'd nod and he'd resume his seat. My mother would just lean forward and go, Peter? And uh, nod her head and Peter would stand. Piki mai, kake mai, hau mai te wai ora ki a hau e tu te hana te moe te kue te pō. Te pō nui, te pō rō, te pō kere kere kwa tai mai koutou. Kao, kao, kao tea. No my, no my, hide my. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. It was the first time I heard that was in our own sitting room. Wow. And I've used it uh, a thousand times. Wow. That's wonderful. But the first time I heard it, every time I think of it, I think of Tarangi Heroes, Peter Buck, the great Maori orator thinker, scholar, writer, soldier, the boy, the half-caste boy from Taranaki, half Irish, half Maori, and Tarangihiro. I have a friend who died only recently who carried his name mm. because his father too was a friend of mm. uh, Tarangihiro. So, my mother established that relationship. My father was to call on Tarangihiroa in Honolulu on his way back from the States uh, and uh, 
actually diagnosed his last illness. But uh, wow. uh, my life has been a photo, the photograph of my grandfather, which you showed me today, uh, and along just in our sitting room, that photograph was sitting us, and there was also a, a photo portrait of Tarangi Hiroa, Sir Peter Buck. Hmm. And it's amazing to me that that was, in a way, that influence from your mother there, that relationship was clearly Indeed. really important to her. Yeah. Because when I look at you and I see all that you've done in your life, you know, you've kind of combined parts of each of your parents, haven't you? I think so. Yeah. I think so. My, my father had the most overt influence, mm -hmm. but behind my mother uh, was uh, her mother, my Toa, who I used to spend quite long periods with because my mother was her eldest daughter. Okay. And I was her eldest daughter's only child, as right. she saw it. And, but my father's interest in social justice meant he was the uh, go-to uh, man for his mother-in-law, my toa, on matters to do with the Naitahu claim. My father used to write articles uh, the New Zealand Labour Party newspaper, The Standard. I remember a big headline, a whole front page, disinherited by inflation. And it was mm -hmm. my father's outline on this whole argument about the effect of inflation. And it was gross uh, in terms of... Yeah. In fact, if you, were, if you did it as a... Uh, today, you'd have to say it was a form of state fraud the mm. original Naitahu settlement of 1946. Mm. But uh, uh, I had to clean up the mess of 1976. Mm. But my father, uh, because of his, he, he had, uh, there's a lot of privileges that doctors used to be able to call upon. And uh, my father managed to get his mother-in-law a landline phone of her own, with her own number, when everyone else in the far south was on party lines, my Toa had her own phone. Wow. And that was so my mother could talk to her, as she did, certainly every two days or so. Wow. That's amazing. And whenever I was, uh, there was a network which was arranged to have me sent south to Bluff. Uh, my mother had an oldest and dearest who was the private secretary to the general manager of the Union Steamship Company. And I would be uh, picked up by Union Steam by the general manager's chauffeur. I would be taken down to the wharf. I would be uh, escorted on board the steamer to pick to Littleton. Uh, I'd be uh, escorted up to the second mate or one of the younger officers who would be charged with my care. <laughs> I would be put on the train the next day uh, and I would uh, travel on the train as a youngster all the way 
from Christchurch to Bluff. Wow. And I'd be met and cared for and looked after there. Mm. And I'd stay for a while and I'd go floundering with my uncle and I'd, I'd go to the wharf and ride out uh, on the pilot boat with was captain of my by my cousin mm. and uh, I'd do all these things and I'd go to school there for a bit and then I'd be returned by a similar mode and one of my uncles would be put off to escort me uh, back to Littleton. I'd always be in the instructions he used to sit on the outside so you can see the coast and see the sea and your job is to point things out to him and uh, my tower would have his list of things that my uncle had to point out. That was an old power. That's where your relation so-and-so lived. That's looking out the window of the train all the way to Christchurch. Wow, that's beautiful. Because these days we would get on an airplane and be somewhere. You fly right over them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It actually, um, in the next part of the interview, I'd like to be able to ask you some questions about some words like fenua and what does it mean to you. Um, but before we do that, just thinking about your parents, um, was there any difficulty in them coming together and getting married? Or was that, they, they clearly oh, had no. fallen in love? No, no, but my, my uh, their marriage uh, uh, upset at least one or two. I think in his day, my father was quite a catch, but there was some awful woman used to ring him every Christmas Eve. And one night we had two phones in our house. He had the phone by his own bed and the phone in the, fr in the front hall. And I picked up the phone at the same time that he did. And I heard this woman's voice. You thought when you married your Maori whore, you were gonna have a tribe. And look what you got. And I heard my father just click down. Wow. My mother knew about that call. He, he heard it, it came every year until I left home, I think. I hope that woman died a miserable death. <laughs> uh, but she might have been, I didn't, I never learned what her name was, but my parents had quite a bit of restraint uh, from, no, that's not the right word. My parents had a considerable experience of negative uh, effects of their marriage. Uh, interracial marriage was almost standard in places like Bluff or the Bay of Islands or all sorts of places, Whakatane, uh, in the early century. Mm. But uh, there was there were two doctors, to my knowledge, in Wellington had Maori wives. My my father and another doctor, Charters, uh, Win Charters, and then. My mother used to host a 
periodically, or pretty frequently, a little group of Māori women married to Pākehā middle-class operators in uh, the Wellington Society of my mm. childhood. And I'd come home at night, uh, whenever the oysters arrived from Bluff, uh, one of my uncles would be opening oysters in season and he put about every uh, he used to reckon it was one in ten whatever it was uh, if there were supposed to be a five dozen tent uh, or ten dozen tent it would be there would only be uh, nine dozen in it because <laughs> every uh, every second or third big oyster would go into Renner, Renner's uh, right. <laughs> tin to go to Wellington. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but whenever the oysters arrived or the titi, the mutton birds uh, arrived I'd come home from school and I could we walking up the road to our house and I could smell the titi mm. being cooked and I'd see there was a big square voxel that was Auntie Nookie Charters and was, she would have picked up Auntie Witherina Harris on the way. And there'd be half a dozen of them all sitting around yakking away, uh, eating mutton birds and <laughs> uh, enjoying their oysters and that gathering and that little cohesion was a, a little outcrop where those probably the, the whole group would have been about probably about 12 people but there's those four or five of them were always there and the others would be mm. and those little gatherings were very important the other thing was my mother uh, always she never she only sang my memory the songs of Alfred Hill they were sort of English Maori crossover songs but they were all tiny ball on end of string the poi with Maori and English mixed mm. uh, it was quite fashionable at that time and uh, she would sing uh, Maori songs and she but she'd sing with other people that come together for an afternoon of song. There was a man called Les Stapp, whose wife used to play the piano, and Mum would she'd play for Mum, and then Les would sing. He he used to do uh, opera opera type songs and uh, quite a lot in Italian and English, and he was a noted baritone. Mm. And uh, my mother was a very full contralto and they would perform Mrs. Stapp would play the piano mm. uh, it was a it was a great treat and then sometimes my Uncle Norman the only non-maritime uncle I had on my mother's family uh, would bring with his family travelling through to Rotorua and his family was 
uh, quite noted as a family choir. His wife was a, he would play the piano, his wife would lead and the girls, my cousins, would all sing. And they used to do this a stage show. It was in the days of the Trap Family Singers. They were regarded as the Trap Family of New Zealand. Hmm. But they'd come to our home and the mattresses would all go out on the floor to the uh, great disturbance of other members of our street. And people would sleep on the floor. The kids would sleep on the floor and the families would all be spread out. Mm. And But uh, when the singing started and they started performing, my Uncle Norman with these amazingly flexible hands, I used to look along the keyboard in amazement at the movement of his hands. Mm. I can remember standing there looking at it. And I was almost totally amusical, but it was uh, these were big events. Yeah, that sounds like it. And just reflecting back on your childhood, was Te Reo part of that childhood and and culture? Only in a to a limited degree. Mm. Uh, my mother would always say if she thought something was absolutely disgusting on behalf of my behalf or some other person, she'd say to Rekare but she'd say it in a very elegant way, slave-born. But it's an ultimate form of condemnation. Right. When my toa said that to me after she clipped my ear, he yeah. <laughs> could just about roll it down the back of her throat. <laughs> <laughs> she'd just about cough it out in her yeah. indignation. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, this has been amazing to hear those people and the, the influences because I, I think that's what helps shape someone. Well, I had, as well, other people beyond my parents mm-hmm. who shaped me very strongly. I, who were they? Well, one was an old man called Cyril Hedlund who was a marine engineer with one artificial leg which he built for himself. And... Uh, from about halfway down his thigh. Uh, and he made it all for himself. And I came down one day to see him. I said, well, where did you get that leg from, Uncle? <laughs> and he was in his workshop. And he said, I nearly drowned the other day. I said, I know you did. Because I had to... He was hanging on to a dinghy with his leg that floated up. <laughs> you see and it's tipping him back and he's right. sitting there hanging on the back of his dinghy he'd fallen in the water off coming off his boat and in the Evans Bay moorings and I rode out with his other dinghy and pulled him out and uh, next time I went in to see him he was in the workshop and he was cutting these big gaps and holes he, so his next artificial leg which he was making himself, he's a very skilled engineer, uh, was all full of holes so the water would <laughs> drain out and it couldn't float. <laughs> and what did you learn from him? What was well, he taught, me, he taught me Rokoa Mona. He taught me Cook Strait. Right. Uh, he taught me tides and winds and he used to take me away as a deckhand for himself. And it was getting a bit wet and cold at the helm. He'd go down and take the lee bunk and... I knew I was on deck from the helm for the night when uh, 
I'd see him. I'd look down in the glow of the cabin lighters, see him taking his leg off. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't intending to come on back on deck until, until he had a good kip. But uh, he had a powerful influence on me and he taught me a lot about how to sail a boat and how to handle a boat and uh, all of those things. And my father had, in, in earlier life, had sailed pre-war with him on the Little Black Viking. And I thought the Little Black Viking was the absolute joy. Yeah. She was a lovely little ship, but she was, I have to say, in terms of my youth, I thought she was absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> but now I regard her as like sailing a half-tide rock. <laughs> <laughs> what did you enjoy thinking about the ocean and being out and feeling the wind on your back and the sun? And what was it that really, that you loved the most? Oh, the sensation of managing the wind and the water and the sea. Uh, broad reaching across North Cook Strait and a... Uh, fresh nor'wester is quite a treat and being able to work the tides so you could uh, <coughs> uh, actually hit uh, uh, Tory Channel at the slack water is quite a trick mm. and uh, I've uh, I've had some wonderful experiences in the Straits, those Straits, and elsewhere. I sailed a big olden schooner on the, out of Mystic Harbour, uh, Connecticut, uh, up in the Atlantic. It's the only time I've sailed on the Atlantic. Uh, and uh, I, I was on the helm for about four hours, and they just about had to chisel me off it by that time I was... <laughs> locked on it yeah. but uh, it was an extraordinary sensation of power under yeah. sail yeah. but I love that power under sail and I had it in centre borders I had it in big boats yeah. but uh, my father used to give me for every pound I saved on my paper round I was probably the only doctor's son in Wellington that had a paper round and I'd deliver newspapers, uh, rain, hail, and snow, uh, all around the top of Mount Victoria and Wellington. It was pretty wild sort of stuff, mm. area to be in in winter particularly. But I, for every pound I saved, my father would give me a pound. Ah. And I saved pound for pound. And my father had in the days when five pounds was the pay for a 40-hour week for a basic labourer, five pounds. Mm. Uh, my father had a rule that I always had to have five pound in my wallet. man should never go down the road without five pound in his pocket. But I used to have to account for that five pound. Mm. And he'd... I had to say what, exactly what I'd done with it and tell the truth. Mm. Uh, that was sometimes challenging. But I was a, a, bit, a little bit older by that time. Uh, I would have been in my early teens. 
But when I had the newspaper around, I was from about uh, the age of about uh, 11 or 12. But it was with the 30 pounds I saved, together with my father's subsidy, that I uh, bought my first boat. I see. And then I stripped it right back and repainted it and did it up. She had top sides that were janolin blue and a bottom that was lemon yellow. And she was sandpapered and gorgeous. <laughs> what it was, was the a Z-class Z, Z Takapona, I think, she was a typhoon. And uh, I had another boat subsequently. Did that first boat, did you have a name for the boat? Yeah, Typhoon. Typhoon, okay, yeah. Uh, no, she was, that was her name when I bought her. Yeah. That's the, nowadays, I have no hesitation in changing the name of a boat, but uh, in those that days, the general thought was that it was bad luck to change the name yeah. of a boat. So this leads to why you were thinking you would move to the Caribbean and Oh, amongst other things, I, I was reading books. I was reading books. I had a complete set of the Mariner's Library uh, by the time I was 15. Mm. I had the whole bloody lot. Uh, I read Arthur Ransom rather than uh, all the books that other kids read. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I had a big library, and my father used to say, "Getting that boy past the bookshops like getting an alcoholic past a pub." <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I actually feel the same as you. I have a lot of books at my house. Um, a whole wall is lined with books. Yeah. It's one of the things I regret these days is that there's fewer second-hand bookstores because indeed, um, indeed. I love to browse a second-hand bookstore and find something, yeah. a topic that I don't know anything about. The best about. one you'll find around the place is in the main street of Picton. Okay. For oh. some curious reason. But there's various online places like Hard to Find Books. And yeah, yeah, that's true. Anyhow... That uh, sort of experience with uh, Cyril Hedlund, the old man who taught me the straits, is one. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, other people who had a powerful influence on me uh, around that time. One of them was my father's older brother, Con, who was a great fisherman, a lawyer by trade, and... Uh, uh, he used to enjoy my company and I his. He introduced me to the wonders of whiskey uh, as well, which was perhaps <laughs> not something that you would put on a man's tombstone, but uh, <laughs> he was a, quite a character. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, another. Um, Elder person who had a very powerful influence on me, influence on me later was the late John Rangiho of Tuhoi. Uh, I was by this time uh, a young lecturer and teacher, and uh, John, some people used to say, have said of him, and he's also a major influence in. Out of the encyclopedia, uh, the uh, Tarangiho 
was regarded by some uh, as the most important New Zealander uh, Māori or Pākehā of his time. He was a War II uh, veteran, he served in the Pacific Theatre, but uh, he was an amazing orator, both in Māori and in English, and mm. a man of enormous magnetic personality. Mm. Uh, and he had a powerful influence on my thinking about matters Māori. Uh, the problem is, Tipene, uh, all these young people are speaking more and more Māori, and they've got less and less Māori to talk about. <laughs> it was one of his uh, key lines, which I've delivered regularly to my <laughs> daughter, Hannah. Uh, but... Tarangiho had a great influence on me, and there was an old man up the Whanganui River whom I met in the company of my man who was to become my very close associate, Cliff Whiting, the artist, uh, Order of New Zealand, and uh, a quite extraordinarily innovative scholar. His, uh, his first mural is out in our hall, and that, um, mm. that's uh, his first one of those. Oh, I see. He was when he was a trainee teacher. Yeah. He uh, he boarded with a well-known artist. Yeah. Uh, who specialised in woodblock printing. Yeah. And uh, that's Cliff's first attempt. So he gave me his first one there, and uh, the big mural out in our front hall huh. is uh, uh, that's his uh, first great uh, wow. piece of work uh, of that form of murals anyhow uh, there's pe people like that have had a profound influence on me but I've been very fortunate in the people who have taken an interest and mm. contributed to my mm thinking I've always been able to uh, offer something in return. Mm. And uh, uh, I've been blessed by some of the associates I've had. Yeah. But within Naitahu as well, there's been uh, a couple of kaumatua, particularly uh, Rangi Solomon of Kaikoura and uh, Old Ricky Ellison from uh, Tomo to Watu Komatua who took a great mm. interest in me. Mm. But also the former Naitahu Trust Board chairman, man who turned it around 1953 the Naitahu Māori Trust Board was broke and the man who came in with a big broom cleaned things up and set the investment patterns up. The late Frank Winter, who's is a Tamati, a Tamati family, Thomas family. He took a deep interest in me once I started at university and made sure I went to the University Maori Club of which he and Artie Pearl were the uh, patrons and they and Frank uh, also 
uh, took big interest in me. When I left university and went away to sea for a bit, he was hugely unimpressed. Anyhow, I resumed contact with him after <coughs> coming ashore, marrying and moving into, but I moved back into Wellington mm. uh, from where I was living at Pākākārīgi. And uh, he put a lot of effort into me, persuading me to go on to the, mm. to, to succeed him on the Naitaka Māori Trust Board, of which he was chairman, not as, uh, he, he said, Bill Toriapu will be the chairman, but I want you to go there for me. Uh, uh, he said, uh, he said, I'm dying. And I said, well, I, anyhow, I turned him down and turned him down. I said, I don't want to do that. I, I want to work on the histories and on the archives and on our culture. And he said, well, you can do all that if you want to, but I want you to go to the trust board. And I couldn't see myself right. sitting there handing out scholarships, yeah. which I now do yeah. like this. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Winter was a keen influence because of the people he introduced me to in the wider Māori political world. Right. And in the end, I I said, all right, Uncle Frank, I'll, I'll go there for one term, and then that's it. He gave a little knowing smile, and three, 45 minutes later he was dead. Anyhow, mm. they're all people who have contributed to my somewhat haphazard career, which was totally unintended, mm. uh, but which had given it shape and form and informed it. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing, because I think that, you know, we so often think or look at an individual who's achieved things and we forget that there's so many influences and other people who've helped shape them to become who they are. And I think in your case now, you're leaving a legacy for people who look to you in the same way that you were mentored or you were appreciated by those people as well. So that's an amazing thing to think about. And can I ask another question, just Thanks. in terms of people who've influenced you? Um, in an interview I saw with you, you were talking about your wife. And oh. I'd be curious to find out, you know, because behind every person, there's... Oh, there's absolutely no doubt. Our old, fr our old friend, the late K.O.A. Davis, used to say, you're lucky you married a Parker. I know Murray would have put up with you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she has, after I retired from the teacher's college, I took redundancy. It was, it was the usual thing. They were trying to uh, cut back on costs, and so they thought they'd reduce the staffing ratios. Mm. And uh, what usually happens in those situations, you're offered voluntary redundancy. Uh, people who take it are usually those you don't want to go. But I took it. And uh, bitterly upset a few people there, but that was all right. Uh, I got rid of a block of mortgage, and uh, uh, Sandra 
work nights. I set up my little consultancy firm in 1983. And uh, the artist Cliff Whiting I mentioned uh, uh, before, he, he designed me a logo. And I put it on a business card. And, uh, none of the people who told me they were going to give me work ever turned up. <laughs> uh, it was pretty lean times for a while. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, the uh, uh, Sandra was working. Uh, she worked at Tolls. Uh, she uh, eventually, when our youngest child uh, turned five and went to school, she enrolled, enrolled at the Polytechnic School of Nursing in Wellington. And she was to go on and become a Wow. Quite a, a senior mm. nurse. And uh, still sits, she's a, uh, as a young woman, younger woman, as a girl, she wanted to become a doctor, but there's no way her family could afford that. Mm. So instead she went to work in a government job in the industries and commerce, a bit of a protege of the late Bill Such. And she was a trainee economist. Such's dream was that she'd be the first woman trade commissioner for New Zealand. And she was only barely out of her teens. She was only 19 when she married me. I was, uh, no, 20. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think it's so important to acknowledge the people who are there. But, but she has supported me. Yeah. Supported our family's interests supported our hunters great passion for to real Māori mm. uh, she's been extraordinary mm. and uh, I had a nearly during the early years of the Naitahu claim I had nearly 11 years of negative income by which I meant my earnings did not cover my outgoings right and so we had five children on her income. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, it's... It's not easy, is it? Yeah, I, I think in my, my situation, I'm involved in a number of different things, and people often say, how do you, well, how are you so busy? And I think, actually, if it wasn't for Ellie, my wife, we've been married now for 18 years, so nowhere near as long as you, but if it wasn't for her, there's no way I could do what I do. And I think that's important to recognize as well. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, my standard uh, joke is uh, it's so hard to get good stuff. Or <laughs> then she brings me a cup of tea. I say, you're going to stay on. I can't afford the redundancy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't think either of us have got any intention of going anywhere. No. Tatipane, I'd love to ask you some uh, just give you some words and hear what your first reaction is when I say them. And in particular, thinking about your mokopuna and those who are to come, perhaps our great-grandchildren. Um, well, I've got four of them. Oh, do you? Yeah. yeah. So thinking with them in mind, if I were to say some words to you, I would love to know what your first reaction is. Right. The first one is Fenua. Well, Fenua is also the word for afterbirth mm. uh, from the birthing process. 
and uh, your whenua uh, is your lands, your place, mm. your coast, your trees. All of these are whenua. But uh, uh, my whenua, the soil from which my spirit uh, uh, proceeds is this island mm. uh, but I love Wellington there's a few places that are very special to me in the North Island particularly Waikaremana and uh, Kapiti mm. Coast mm. but Fenua to me is where you belong mm. and it's a symbol of where you come to where you go. That's a great. And I liked the story you told of being on the train with your uncle and pointing out the names of places as you went. Names of places and his own memories of them. Because mm. that's so important, isn't it? To yeah. know what's the name he of this came place. Out, I remember it was, he came around the headland uh, looking over Puraco Nui and the inlet, and uh, he said, I went to a funeral down there once, lad, my tongue, and uh, I don't think they're doing that anymore there, but I was quite young. So every time I look down from Burns Point back into Paraco now, I think of that Think of that moment. Yeah. All right. How about Wairua? Wairua is a uh, a wide concept, but to me, uh, Wairua is uh, spirit. But you also have a Wairua uh, around you. Some people seem to have a sense of uh, a further element of being. Honuki Wairua, Hawaiki Roa, Hawaiki Noe, Hawaiki Noe, Hawaiki Roa, Hawaiki Paumama, Kito Hono Honuki Wairua. It's the place of spirits. Uh, and Wairua is something that has a real magic to it. Now, that little woodcut uh, has a Wairua to it for me because it's the first woodcut made by my very dear friend. His a mural, which is out in our entryway, uh, as a wairua because it's his first creation of that kind. Mm. Mm. Wairua to me is uh, things that are invested with not just spirit but also with memory. Uh, it's a thing, a place which has something about it which engages your spirit, your wife. Mm.
Yeah, that's beautiful. I think for me, it's a very spiritual word and that there are places in the world where I go and I feel like there's a thinness between spiritual and physical. I think that's, yeah, absolutely. I've, uh, uh, well, hmm. I look at this fella. I took it off once at a law conference to the horror of the Komatua and I placed it around the neck of Sonny Ramphal. And the old lady spent the rest of the evening impressing upon him the importance of sending it back at some point. So I was a bit taken aback when I turned up at, uh, by all sorts of manipulation by others, I turned up to attend an address by Sonny Ramphal ten years later in Wellington at the law school and Secretary General of the Commonwealth and uh, he pointed out that rather than leave this matter to the executives uh, I would uh, he said I repeated the event which I was disgusted at the piece that the New Zealand government had just given it it was like a piece of supposed to be Maori carving it was just junk and I got up and made a wee speech and walked across and just took this off and hung around his right. neck. And he wore it to Commonwealth conferences, this one. Mm. And uh, anyhow, he said, rather than leave this matter to my executors, I'm impressed with the memory and the generosity. And mm. so, Tipane, I'd like you to come forward. Mm. And I, I walked up and he hung it back around my neck. Wow. And people clapped and cheered and uh, went on and someone stood up and sang a song and uh, we went off for supper. Mm. Well, I've got another one off the same model, it's not, not quite, it's different shape and form, it doesn't look the same until you look at it carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a Cliff Whiting, that's that man there, designed it. Uh-huh. Another one, but Bone Carver made it for me. And he made me another one to replace this. Well, it was away on holiday with Sonny Ramphal at Commonwealth Conferences. <laughs> Anyhow, he uh, uh, gave it back to me. And yeah. so, one of the most impressive men I've ever known. And both he and the Duke of Edinburgh were honorary members of the Order of New Zealand. And I'm one of the 20 now members of the Order of New Zealand. Mm. And so this one I'm wearing today has all sorts of wairua Mm. attached to it from those events and places where it's been and seen. Yes. And I'm doing my best to make sure that each of the many pieces I have has the story that they carry of where they've been and what, yeah. what they are from. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, how about mana? Oh, mana is a very interesting thing. It's much more than reputation, mm-hmm. which is the standard uh, translation of it. By, uh, mana is a concept it's power, it's force, 
the mana, the ihi, the wehi, uh, the awesome force, the uh, uh, the unforgiving force. Uh, it's the first stage of uh, mana, but you should act with mana. Like many Māori words, it depends very much on how you, the context in which you're using it. Mm -hmm. But you should always act with mana. If I defer to someone, I said no, I say no to mana. Yours is the mana. Uh, if I want them to, what do you think I should do? No to mana. No, N-A-U. It's your decision, it's your right, it's your uh, time. Mm. Kaitiakitanga? Kaitiakitanga is the idea of not so much a caretaker, but a steward, a protector, uh, a person. Uh, it's, it's got with it the duty of trust. Uh, that a steward has. Mm -hmm. It's frequently used as a guardian, but it's more than that. You just don't protect something, you assist it to live, to flourish, to be. It seems to me sometimes we forget that we are in relationship in a living way with the natural world. Indeed, indeed. And I think that's something that... This is something to be protected, cared for. It's not passive. That's why I use the term stewardship rather than caretaker. A caretaker can be someone who just goes around and locks the gate and unlocks it in the morning. Yeah, but if there's a personal connection, it almost like a, a sisterhood or brotherhood. Oh, indeed. indeed. And I think that's something that in Western world, people often use the term steward or guardian as a justification for yeah. exploiting a resource. I agree. Rather I than agree. realizing that, hey, we're all part of this world together. Indeed. How about Manakitanga? Manakitanga is both welcome, the business of welcoming people. You can say it's hospitality, it's caring, it's making people, how can I put it, it's, a bit, it's got a fair element of kaitiaki in it. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but it's it's got the duty of welcoming, the duty of, duty of offering monarchy, mm. of yeah. offering. Yeah, I think it's a warm word. I had to find a name for a friend of mine's boat not so long ago. Okay, and I thought of him, and I so we called him monarchy. Mm. That's wonderful. And then I'd like to hear your thoughts on two words, kaupapa 
and treaty. Well, the treaty, the treaty is, uh, it's more, the uh, goal said uh, treaties are like young girls. They are as long as they are. The treaty is fine. After a while, the young girl grows old and she's, she's not the same. Mm. And the treaties change. But the, our treaty was given a life by combination of Geoffrey Palmer and his notion of the principles of the treaty. And that was, that life was more clearly defined or described by the Privy Council in London. Said the principles of the treaty must necessarily include, but are not limited to, the actual terms of the treaty itself. And so that's third para of the Privy Council's decision on um, to real Māori. Mm. Now, what was the next one? I think well, I said kaupapa as well. Well, kaupapa. Yeah. Kaupapa is a useful word again, shaped by context as to its meaning. But the original kaupapa is the platform between the two hulls of a double canoe. So if you've got two hulls and mm. life exists on the platform and it's a, it's a fundamental base feature because it holds the two canoes together as a catamaran basically it gives it stability and makes it possible for it to voyage mm. into, into uh, between islands and voyage on the open ocean which single hull canoes are somewhat trickier to manage in deep water and rough water mm. a double hull canoe it's held together by its kaupapa and so it's both a unifying factor and it's uh, it's the derivation of the word yeah but it's a uh, hard to cope with mortena but what is the theory of this uh, idea what is the philosophy or principle behind it mm. a need to cope with this is the purpose. Mm. Uh, okay. uh, so, so anything between philosophy, purpose, or indeed, as I say, mm. the structure of a waka una or a double canoe, mm. a voyaging canoe, yeah. uh, that's kaupapa to me. Yeah. yeah. I just have two final things I wanted to ask you about. Um, the first is continuing this theme of words and what they mean. We actually share something in that we both have worked with the Institute of Directors in the past. Indeed, I'm a distinguished fellow. A distinguished fellow. Um, and I do presenting for them um, in their courses. And I've done a podcast for them last year about governance. And so I'm just curious about governance and whether there's anything distinctive in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, about governance that you've noticed over the years. I think it has become increasingly responsive uh, 
to increasingly responsive to um, uh, the social issues of the day is not simply about profit. It would be silly to say that governance does not have to be cautious or careful about profit. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a wider duty in governance, such as uh, uh, the areas brought about by diversity uh, and uh, various duties of care, much of which, many of which have been imposed by regulation. But uh, I think we've got a wider view of governance today than the rather barbaric uh, behaviour of some elements in the commercial sector. Mm. Uh, so do you think it's changed over time? Like oh yes, yes. But there have always been uh, employers and managers and directors who would insist on doing the decent thing and being fair and open and generous. Mm. Uh, and to be also, on the other hand, you can't do that unless uh, you're turning a dollar. Mm. And so uh, that balances so. But I found uh, when I took over the chairmanship of the new reconstructed Seedle Group, uh, whatever year it was, 93. Uh, January 93, I think it was, anyhow, whatever. My point is that uh, I, well, I I very quickly didn't take much, uh, it wasn't very challenging for me to find out, but I introduced quite quickly a thing though that I wanted the senior captains to meet and talk with the uh, a board of directors once a year because everyone's sitting at the table. Mm. The old man Kakazoi of Japan and myself were the only two who had any maritime experience at all. They're all commercial people. Phil Luff, the chief executive, had come out of the brilliant career with the New Zealand Dairy Board overseas. But uh, fish was just another commodity to me. Mm. So I wanted the, uh, I wanted the uh, senior captains to uh, uh, speak and interact with the director, board of directors, uh, at least a couple of them, at least twice a year, and this was regarded as radical at the time. I said because. A DC trawler skipper is running a ship and a, uh, a factory. He's running two separate crews in those areas. He's responsible for navigation and safety of the whole lot. Mm. Uh, he's also responsible for a piece of kit that's uh, worth close to 130 million. Yeah. 
uh, and uh, you send him away to the Southern Ocean for six weeks on and six weeks off. He's got the power of life and death and the responsibility of life. He's got to be understand the engineering questions. He's got to understand the weather, the situation, mm. and also catch fish. <laughs> and who around this table, I would say, has a comparable level of personal accountability and responsibility. Uh, what those guys do, how they do it, is the central element in the success of this business. Mm. So I introduced that factor. That skipper has got all that power and all that authority uh, and responsibility uh, also is managing himself and uh, exercising governance at a level mm. that not many of us have to do. Mm. So I think I've got various attitudes towards governance, but I get a bit fed up with those who sit around regarding governance, or sitting around working out what not to do, uh, or how to avoid difficulties, mm. uh, and cannot see the merits of if you refuse to take a risk, you're actually refusing, you're taking that negative view, you're working out what not to do. Mm. Uh, so they do. you do need to have a focus on what needs to be done rather than what not to do. Mm. And I think that's been a... I think that's my take on governance and the uh, certain cynicism I have about a certain kind of uh, precept of, in the mm. business school sector. Yeah, it can't be an excuse to do nothing, can it? It needs to no. be proactive and forward-looking. It needs to be proactive. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Well, I really appreciate all the time that you've generously shown me well, and I'm, with uh, the Manaki. I'm delighted to have done so. Uh, I just have the final question would be, right. when you um, think about your grandchildren and you talk to them, is there any one thing that you would like them to know? I would like them to know who they are, where they're from. I'd like them to know about this island, but also about Wellington. I'd like them to know they are from you know, uh, are grown, have been grown in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I'd like them to know that I care. That's beautiful. Thank you. And Tate Regan, thank you for your time today. I've really enjoyed hearing about your childhood, your grandparents, your parents, all of those different people who've influenced you. 
and then all of the things. We didn't even talk about the detail of your life and what you've done because I was really wanting to focus on what's shaped you into who you are today. So thank you for um, opening up and allowing us to learn more about that side of your life. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Stephen, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tatipine Oregon. For me, there were many highlights. Uh, this is actually the longest episode that I've ever done. And obviously, we talked about his early childhood, his influences. We talked about so many different topics. And one of the things that struck me is that you can look at a person and have great admiration for them and never really understand what it is that shapes them into who they become. And so the challenge that I have for myself and for each of you is, who are the people in your life that can be influenced in a positive way? Might be nieces, might be nephews, might be cousins, that next generation of people coming up. Each of us has a role to play, to plant seeds if you like. And even if we don't sit in the shade of what grows, it will be a positive thing to have influenced others around us. If you enjoy this episode, then why not share it on social media so other people can find it? Or tell one other person about Seeds and that you enjoyed this particular episode. This is a word-of-mouth project. I don't really have a budget, so it relies on people like you to share about the content on Seeds. And if you go to theseeds.nz, you can sign up for a newsletter there as well. And one other plug is that the Seeds Impact Conference is coming up soon on October the 5th. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. There's going to be 27 different sessions across one day, all held online. So you might want to check that out as well. Until next time, kakiteano!